are good. So I'm going to go ahead and get started. Um, okay, so today we are jumping into the fruit of the Spirit themselves um, after our introduction. And so today we're going to start with love. Um, but before we get started, I would just like to pray with you all first. Father God, thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to come and to gather as your people to worship you, um, to learn about you, Lord, and to know you. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would bless our time this morning um, in Sunday school. I pray that you would bless uh, the preaching of the word later in our worship to you, Lord. Um, I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and our minds to conform us to the image of Christ um, so that we might walk uh, holy and blameless before you and uh, honor you in all that we do. We love you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to the question of love, I want to ask you guys a question, so I'm going to open it up to you all. And uh, you don't have to raise your hand. You can just jump in with your answers. Um, when you look at, if you were to view the landscape of American culture today, how is the, the concept or the idea of love, how is that utilized? What does that mean in our culture today? I'd say flippantly, like we kind of love everything. Sometimes it's just overused to the point that it really does have a meaning. Because I, I love football, I love coffee, I love, and so I think it's overused and, and uh, it may lose value. Yeah, love is used for practically everything we enjoy. It's used from everything from I love my spouse to yeah I love popcorn or I love pizza. And so like Sam said, it can lose its value. Um, what else? What's some other ways? Love is love, using it as a defense for sin. You can't expand on that, do you? Uh, people, you know, they just, uh, they, I mean, most people are familiar with the statement, but with the endorsement of homosexuality and everything, um, people redefine love to be whatever you want it to be, um, and whatever, you know, suits your own desires versus what is allowed by God. Yeah. I would say that when I was thinking about that this week, that was probably the dominant thing that came to mind. I think that's on, at least that's the loudest voice that we have in our culture today, is that idea that love can be whatever it is to anybody. That's okay. Love is highly personalized. Um, as I was thinking about it, the more I reflected on it, even beyond you know the LGBTQ movement and things of that nature, Love is ironically inherently, I think, selfish in the way we think about it in our culture today. If you think about uh, even like marriage in our culture today, love is purely emotional. Uh, it's purely based upon how I feel in a given moment. And so people get married because they feel in love with a person. And after some time, that feeling of love that they had starts to dwindle and die out, and what happens? They divorce, they separate, because marriage was fundamentally about them. Their love, concept of love was fundamentally about what they got from somebody else. And it's the same thing with the homosexual movement and transgenderism and all this all this that we see in our culture. Even, even like Sam was saying, the flippant use of it, it all becomes about what I want, what I enjoy, what I desire. And so I think this has also made its way, it's making its way into the church. And sometimes it's in more extreme form, sometimes it's more subtly. But if you look around American Christian culture as well, I can say from personal experience, especially among my demographic, it's not uncommon to find those same ideas. Even if they don't support homosexuality, um, love, is still fundamentally about ourselves. I've heard, I can tell you numerous times from people of my age group, uh, they don't believe in sharing the gospel or confronting people with truth because they deem that that's unloving. Um, because it's unloving to shove something down their throat, is what they would say, to try and force your view upon of God upon them. And I would argue that fundamentally that's the same thing. It's just selfishness. 
that what they're really trying to, who they're really trying to spare is not themselves, or not the other person, but themselves. That what they deem as loving is actually just them being comfortable, um, life being about them. And so I think it's an important place to start because if we're not careful, that kind of thinking can really subtly make its way into the church and it can make its way into our hearts and minds. And I'm sure as all you know, there could not be a more contrary portrait of love to the scriptures. In the scriptures, as we're gonna see today, love is fundamentally not about you. Loving someone, loving the Lord is fundamentally about loving someone outside of yourself and giving of yourself freely to that person. And so we have these two opposite pictures and if we're not careful to define love by the scriptures, then we might succumb to the cultural trends and then let that influence our thinking. And so with that said, I want to spend a little time, before we get into practically love in the life of the Christian, I would like to spend some time thinking about the biblical portrait of love, what love means according to the Bible. And there's two ways that I'd like to do that. First, I would just want to define some of the terms that are used in the Hebrew and the Greek for love. And then I would like to go to the Lord and look to the Lord and see how he is the example of love. How love is essential to God's nature, that he is, it is a characteristic of God. Um, and in Christ, the, the picture of love that we have in the fruit of the Spirit is perfectly embodied. And as Christ is our example, we ought to follow that. So, with that being said, in the Bible, in the Hebrew, there's a bit of a difference between the uh, Hebrew in the Old Testament and the New Testament Greek when it comes to love. So in the Old Testament, there's one most common word, and I don't have it up there, um, but it's Ahav, which covers many of the uses of love in the Old Testament. And Ahav is in some ways kind of similar to the way we use love in English, and it is applied to a wide variety of subjects. So it refers to romantic love between a spouse. So in the Song of Solomon, for example, that is the word used to convey this passion and this fierce desire and love for the other person. Um, it is used, um, for example, between David and Jonathan to convey uh, their brotherly love for one another. Um, it's also used to convey the passion and desire that the Israelites had uh, in their idolatry. And uh, the prophets, when the prophets would use this image of Israel being idolaters and adulterers, and they would use that image to convey their idolatry, that they were adulterers who had forsaken the God who loved them and took care of them, and they pursued these other idols, was that same word. And it's conveying not just that they went after these other idols, but the, the absolute passion and desire that they had for the idols rather than for the Lord. And then the other word that's probably most common in the Old Testament, and we've talked about it, I know Reverend Rick has talked about it before, but that's the Hebrew word hesed. And hesed refers to God's steadfast love. Um, when I was an undergrad, my professor of Old Testament called it God's covenantal love, which mm -hmm. I really like. It's his love for his people that is uh, eternal and steadfast. It's never failing. Um, we read of this a lot in the Psalms. The psalmist speaks a lot of God's steadfast love, his hesed for his people, um, for his king. But then when we come to the New Testament, we actually have a more precise language. Greek is much more precise in its language about love, and it has more specific meanings. So the two words that we see the most in the New Testament, actually the only two Greek words we see for love in the New Testament, is philia, which refers to a strong or warm affection, um, often defined as brotherly love. So you could think of the city of Philadelphia, for example, uh, is the city of brotherly love. That's what that means, quite literally. And then the other word we see, and the word that's most common in the New Testament, is that agape, agape love. And agape love refers to selfless and sacrificial love. Um, the one of the books we read by Jonathan Cruz, he said that it refers to unnecessary love in the sense that somebody is doing this not out of necessity for themselves, but completely out of love for the other person, out of a desire to serve the other person. And it has a particular emphasis on choice and action rather than desire. 
So in the Greek, there's a Greek word eros, which refers to the romantic love and desire that is shared. And we don't see that at all in the New Testament. We only see agape. And I think if we want to look at agape and see what it looks like in the life of the Christian, we have to start with how we learn about love from the Lord. Um, I think as we look through all of these, the fruit of the Spirit, what we're going to find, and Reverend Rick mentioned this in the introduction, is there's kind of two ways almost that you can view all the fruit of the Spirit. Um, and they're both true in the Christian life. One, uh, there's this objective reality of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives in that the fruit of the Spirit, all things that we have received from the Lord um, by the, through the Gospel. right? So we have received love through the gospel. Um, our joy comes from Christ and the gospel. We have been given peace with God because of the gospel. And so these are things that are true of the Christian life objectively and that the spirit is working out in the lives of his people. But it also has, uh, there are also commands and exhortations for us to follow. Because we have been loved, we are to love other people. Uh, because the Lord rejoices in his people and has granted joy in the gospel, we are commanded to have joy in all circumstances. And we'll see that through all the fruit of the Spirit, that we can see uh, see all those fruit of the Spirit operating in both those ways. And so it's vitally important, and I'll get to this more later, that we start with the love of God and see how the Lord, who is love, as we read in 1 John, that God is love, it's important that we start and orient our understanding of what it means to love and to love others and orient that in the love of God himself. It's important for us, before we get to how do we love as Christians, um, to start with how did Christ love his people? How does Christ love sinners? Because that then keeps us from uh, legalism or moralism, and it helps keep us grounded in the gospel. And so then our efforts at love are not my way of trying to keep in the kingdom or my way to earn God's approval, but this natural outworking of the spirit in my life as I come to know and see the gospel in greater measure. So with that in mind, um, I have five, five lessons that we should learn um, from the life of Christ, and specifically five lessons that we should learn from Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. Um, we can see Christ's love all throughout his earthly ministry, his compassion for the sick and the needy, his compassion for sinners. Um, but as the New Testament makes clear, there's no greater expression, there's no greater demonstration of love in all of human history than the love that was shown to us on the cross and in the resurrection of Christ. So as we look at the cross, the first thing I want us to see is that Jesus' love is ready and willing. So we read in Luke 9:51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Um, we read in also Matthew 16:21 a similar passage. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day, be raised. So Jesus knows that the cross is his mission. And he knows, because he's truly God and truly man, all that the cross entails. Not only just the physical suffering that would come with the cross, but far more so than that, that the wrath of God would be poured out upon him for the sins of his people. And I think it's an incredible reality that the way that Jesus approaches the cross is not uh, reluctant. It's not that he does not want to go and he's being forced, um, but that Jesus desires to go and to save sinners. That though he knows what is before him, his heart is set upon accomplishing this work the Father set before him. His heart is set on saving a people for himself. Um, it reminds me, as I was thinking about this, of the covenant of redemption. And in Reformed theology, you have the covenant of works and the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption. And the covenant of works pertaining to those commands that God gave Adam in the garden um, to keep the garden and to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, it's this idea that if 
we have been given this command, and the reward for keeping that command is life eternal. But if we break that command, he promised Adam and Eve they would die. Um, we have the covenant of grace, which we see also from Adam, and then fulfilled ultimately in Christ. And that this is God's unworking of, through these different covenants, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and so on. God's work in salvation of sinners through his grace. Um, and we see that ultimately in Christ as he fulfills the covenant of works on behalf of his people where they could not. But another covenant that we see in the Bible is the covenant of redemption. And it's this idea that within the Trinity, there is this covenant made to redeem sinners. And that the different persons of the Trinity take on that responsibility of saving a people. And so the Father sends the Son, and the Son comes with the mission to save sinners, to go to the cross. And I think that's a great um, demonstration of the readiness and the willingness of Christ to go to the cross. That from the foundation of the world, um, before he even came in human flesh to save sinners, this was his set determined plan. And that he desired to go and to save sinners. And so love is not just something we choose to do in a cold, detached way without any willingness. But love is a desire to serve others and to put others in front of yourself, to be ready and to be willing. And so the question that we must ask ourselves is, do we love in that same way? Um, is our love ready and willing? Um, when those opportunities are presented within the church or within our families, um, with our friends, do we respond in that same way that Christ did? That we are not reluctant to love, but that we are eager and willing to love? I know. Yes, sir. If I could interject in there, it seems like ministry always comes at the most inconvenient time. So I think this very much comes into play in those moments. So. Yeah. I think, I think, yes. It's oftentimes when we're, the self-sacrificial love, by definition, requires sacrifice. And for it to be sacrificial means that it's not convenient or necessarily what we want to do. Um, if that was the case, then it wouldn't be sacrificial. And I think, I know in my own life, I can speak from experience, it's easy to love when I feel like loving people or when that's the easy thing to do. Um, when my heart is so inclined in that given moment, my emotions match up with that calling. But the love that Christ calls us to and the Christ that love that Christ embodies is not just a love that matches up with a particular moment and circumstance, but love that persists even when that is the most inconvenient thing, even when that's what we least want to do in a given moment. Um, when we're tired or we just want to be home, um, or we don't want to go help someone move, or we don't want to help someone when their car broke down. And you could put any example you want on that. But yeah, I think love is fundamentally sacrificial in every way. Um, and we see that, especially in the cross, that idea of Jesus' love being sacrificial. Um, Jesus coming to save required great sacrifice. We read in John 15, 13, um, in that chapter where uh, Reverend Rick was teaching on last week, where Jesus calls his, uh, his disciples to abide. In that same chapter, he tells them, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. I've, it is the utmost calling of love to lay down one's life. And it's easy to take that and to purely regulate that to symbolic language of sacrifice and miss the punch of what Jesus is saying that the greatest form of love is quite literally to lay down your life for someone else and Jesus embodies that this is not just symbolic language he's using what he means is that the actual laying down of your life is the greatest love you can show and we see that in the cross that Christ sacrificed everything to save sinners not only did he give up heaven and the glories and the praises that he enjoyed to come to earth and to endure life as a human being um, to humble himself in that way but as Philippians says he humbled himself to the point of death even death on the cross um, that he laid down his life as exceedingly valuable life and shed his priceless blood for the salvation of sinners which leads to the next point that Jesus' love is gracious um, 
Jonathan Cruz says that love is fundamentally a sacrificial act of giving. Um, And at the heart of giving is graciousness. Um, It's generosity towards others, a desire to be generosity. Um, So if anyone wants, if somebody could recite or if somebody wants to look up and read for us John 3.16. I'm sure many of you know it by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So right there we have this connection between the love of Christ, the love of God, and the act of giving. John 3.16 tells us, because God so loved the world, he gave. He gave his own son, his only begotten son. The second member of the Trinity came down to save sinners. And so fundamentally in the love of God, there is that act of gracious giving, that desire to be generous towards others. And the generosity of God is so great that even though sinners have rebelled against his commands and deserves, deserved um, his righteous retribution and his justice for their sins, though we had no merit, there was no uh, obligation for God to save. God, of his own choice and free will, chose to save, and he chose to give. And so for us, we learned it from that that the love of God, the love of Jesus is gracious. It desires to give graciously to people. Which is closely connected with our fourth point, that Jesus' love is merciful. Um, Jonathan Cruz says, love is gracious and that it gives, but love is merciful and that it gives to people who do not deserve it. Love is gracious and that it gives, but love is merciful and that it gives to people who do not deserve it. One of the passages that makes me think of this is Romans 5, 6 through 11. So would somebody mind turning there and reading Romans 5, 6 through 11 for us? die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his love, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were still enemies, or if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Such an amazing passage when you consider who Christ died for. And I know we know that. I know we hear that. Um, And thankfully we hear that every week in the proclamation of the scriptures. But we never, there's never a moment we don't need to be reminded of that again. That Christ did not come for those who were his friends, for those who worshipped him, or even those who sought him and desired him. Christ died for the weak, the ungodly, those who were his enemies. He did not leave sinners to face eternal judgment. By the mercy he came to save us from our sins. It's like the hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. God delights to save sinners, and he demonstrates his love and a gracious, merciful gift of his son to send Christ who came willingly to die for sinners, to die for his enemies, to take upon them, or take upon himself the justice that they deserved so that they might be saved and walk in communion and union with him for all eternity. And because this is something that Christ took on willingly, because this is something that he determined to do, that the Trinity determined to do, this leads to the last point, 
Um, that Jesus' love shown on the cross is steadfast. And this brings us back to that Old Testament idea of hesed. I think the cross, the cross is the embodiment and the fulfillment of hesed love. If there was ever an expression of covenantal, steadfast love, it is the cross. That God promised salvation, and through covenant, through covenant in the Old Testament, we see this progressive revelation of what that salvation would look like. And then finally, in the New Testament, the Messiah himself comes onto the scene, and then he goes to the cross to save sinners. The fulfillment of all those covenantal promises made in the Old Testament to his people. And more than that, this love and salvation of Christ is steadfast and will remain for his people forever. And I know for me, that's a great balm for my soul, because it's very easy to fall into the mindset, the very mindset that Galatians had, um, where this, the fruit of the Spirit is found, that I begin the race by faith, and then I finish by works, because I often fall back into the trap that I somehow have to try and merit God's love. And I think that's a temptation that we all face. This, 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 this slippery slope where we start to slide into, if I don't perform well enough, then God won't love me, or I'm not good enough to be in the kingdom. But the love of Christ is steadfast. As Romans 8 tells us, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Um, there's not, no one can bring a charge against God's people. No one can separate through persecution or famine because God's love is steadfast. Um, there's no way for us to be separated from him. And I would just ask you, I would plead with you to pray and think about this this week. As you go through your daily worship, your times of quiet time, your family worship, spend some time reflecting on the love of Christ. Um, think about that great love that he's shown you, and don't just bypass that. But spend time to meditate on that, and don't let that become just something that I know intellectually, but becomes cold and dead and void of life. But pray over it and meditate on it like Reverend Rick was talking about it. Because meditating on those truths is what will fuel our obedience to love other people. Um, and so before we go to love in the life of believers, does, if, does anybody have any questions or comments on any of that? Perfect. So as I said earlier, the reason that it's so important to start with the love of God and the love of Christ and the life uh, and the love of Christ shown in the cross is that it correctly orients the way we think about love in the life of believers. Because as we come to the New Testament, the commands that we receive to love is actually grounded in the love of Christ. Um, so if somebody would read for us John 13, 34 through 35. commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples and you have love for one another. So the command for Christians to love this fruit that we're to bear in our life is grounded in the love of Christ. The commandment Christ gives is you are to love the way that I have loved you. Because I have loved you so now you ought to love one another. Um, it's the love of God that compels us to love, and it's the love of God that empowers us to love. Um, we love because God loved us, and we are able to love because God loved us. And so if we skip over the love of God, and we skip over the love of Christ first and go straight to this is how you ought to do this, um, we lose that the power of the Spirit, and we lose that vital understanding of the gospel that enables us to love the way that Christ loved. Otherwise, our love will start to look like the world's. It will become dependent upon myself um, and what I do or what I feel like. Um, and I think, as I was thinking about this verse, one thing that I thought was really important for us to note is it struck me that Jesus says that this is a new commandment he gives. And the question that brought up in my mind maybe you're asking as well, is how is this a new commandment? Because earlier in uh, Matthew, for example, in other Gospels, Jesus talks about um, the loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself fulfills 
the Law and the Prophets. And those both are found in the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament. Um, the Shema found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and then in Leviticus, I believe it's 18, the call to love one another as you love yourself. So how is the call to love a new commandment? And I believe the answer is that this is a new commandment because Christ, one, has shown us by his example how to love. And two, this love, has we have a progressing revelation of it and that it no longer just extends to our neighbor, love your neighbors yourself, but the love of Christ calls us to love our enemy. Right? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he takes this idea of love and he takes that from the law and he shows the heart of the law. But it's not just love the people who love you because even the pagans do that. But if you are people called by God and loved by God, then you ought to love your enemies. And so when we look at this command to love, this command to love is not just for people in the church. It's not just for people who believe the gospel. It's not just for people who are family or our friends, but the call to love is so radical that it's a love for one's enemies. And I, there's a lot of ways maybe we could understand that in our lives. I don't know what your enemy looks like or how you would define that. I mean, it could be the person who bugs you at work and drives you absolutely bonkers. It could be your family members, I guess. Uh, maybe one of them you consider your enemy, though I hope not. Um, it could be the people on the street. It could be the people in the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, it could be those people who mock Christ, um, who make a mockery of his love and his sacrifice in the Christian faith, um, where we quickly, instead of feeling of responding with compassion and love, we can fall into a self-righteousness and a pride when we re- interact with those people rather than a love that is selfless and sacrificial for them, that desires to see them um, saved and come to faith in Christ and to turn from their wicked ways. So there's a lot of ways for us to understand what that looks like. But this is the command that we have that's rooted in that love of Christ. So all those things that we just talked about, the readiness of Christ's love, the willingness, um, the mercy and the graciousness, all of those things then inform this commandment. If we are to love like Christ loves, then that calls us to understand his love and what his love is like. Um, and I would just add that those points I brought up are just, that's just five points. Um, you can spend the rest of your life studying the scriptures to see the love of God in more and more fullness and find the myriad of different ways that he has loved us and the different aspects of that, which I would encourage you to do. And then the other thing I want to talk about in the life of a believer, love in the life of a believer, is that love is not only our command, um, but love is the mark of a believer. It is the mark of a Christian. Um, a passage that makes this very, very clear, um, if somebody would like to turn there, is in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. If somebody would like to read that for us, that would be great. First John 4, 7 through 12. Yes, sir. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us he has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So, according to John, and he's writing to a people who have been dealing with false teaching, um, for those who deny essential truths about the Christian faith. And what he tells them is, and we read this in other places, God is love. That is God's essential nature and character. And if a Christian, if you are a born-again Christian, this is the mark that you are truly born of God. 
is that you love other people. Um, it, we could say that this might be the most fundamental calling of the Christian life. Um, I think if we look at the rest of the fruit of the Spirit, as I was reflecting on this, it struck me that the rest of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul said, notes here um, all could be tied back to love. Um, joy and peace and goodness and gentleness, self-control, faithfulness, all of these things you could say are aspects of what it means to love. And I think we see the same thing in uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, um, which we talked about last week, where Paul gives a similar list of the virtues that should be uh, accompanying the Christian life, the things that God's people ought to put on that the Spirit is producing in them. And interestingly, in verse 14, after he gives the virtues, he says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So I don't think it's an idle thing that Paul has put love first in the fruit of the Spirit, or that he ends the list in Colossians with above all these things, put on love. Because love is the fundamental calling of a Christian. It is our fundamental commandment, and it's our fundamental mark. Everything that the Christian does is out of love for the Lord and out of love for people. That's why the love of the Lord and love for neighbor fulfills the law and the prophets. It is at the heart of what it means to be God's people and to be called by him. So the love of God, or the love is uh, a command for a Christian. It's a mark of a Christian. Um, before our last point, I really want to give an example of this, I think, which is really, really helpful. And when I was an undergrad, I read a book by a gentleman named Rodney Stark. And he was a sociologist, and he wrote this book called The Rise of Christianity. And he examines the rise of Christianity in the first few centuries uh, AD. And he was looking at the patterns um, that were present in the Christian growing into this massive movement. Um, he was examining what caused some of this growth. And I believe, like, don't quote me on this, that he was, at the time when he wrote it, I don't think he was a believer, um, but I think he ended up becoming a believer. So this is mostly through a very, I mean, it's a very sociologic, uh, sociologist lens. So it's very secular. It's In some ways, when you read it, it's kind of, de it's devoid of Christian truth, like he's examining this purely from someone standing in the world looking at this movement. What I thought was interesting as I read the book was how everything he noted were just was just the work of God and his people. And it was just the people of God living as God called them to live. And so one of the chapters uh, he wrote was about in early Rome, um, in the first and second century, there were two major epidemics that swept through the Roman Empire. And Historians estimate that these epidemics um, killed somewhere between a quarter and a third of the Roman population. Um, it was this devastating epidemic. And what's interesting is that there were two responses that historians look at, and Rodney Stark notes these two responses from non-believers and believers in the Roman Empire. Well, the non-believers removed themselves from contact from the diseases. So those who were rich and wealthy and had, for example, villas outside the city would retreat to the countryside to live segregated from everyone else, to stay away from the plague. Um, those who couldn't do that, though were not much better, they would just take the bodies and they would throw them outside the city in the streets and just try to get away from them as much as possible. Um, they did not love one another, did not try to serve. There was no basic medical care for anybody. It was everybody fending for themselves, trying to survive. But there's a strikingly different response from the Christians. Christians, instead of fleeing from the epidemic and fleeing from those who are sick, uh, fled into those homes of those who are sick, who went willingly to care for the sick and the diseased. Um, and Rodney Stark notes that they were historians believe that many people survived as a, as a result of that basic medical care, that basic, very, the most basic of nursing in that time. Many lives were saved by the Christians, oftentimes at their own expense. They would care for someone who would be able to make it through, but then they themselves would die. And the whole time what they preached to these people and told them 
was that they loved this way. They were doing this because Christ had loved them in the same way. And so Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria writes of the efforts of believers in the epidemic. And he says, Most of our brothers, Christians, showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. I thought this was a great example of what it means to be marked by the love of Christ. That throughout history, now historians look back at this time, and they look at the Christian church, and they see this fundamentally calling to love embodied in the people, and the love of Christ as the mark in those people, who, like we read in John, literally gave up their own lives. They loved to the point of death, just like their Savior. Um, they didn't see that symbolic, but they went to that, that extreme to show the love of Christ to people and to proclaim to them the gospel. And so this is the way that we are also called to love. Um, and so as we come to, we got about 10 minutes left, I think practically looking at love. Um, there's one chapter, and I know you're all familiar with it, uh, but I think it's really, really helpful for our understanding of love, and that's 1 Corinthians 13. But before we get to um, 1 Corinthians 13, I want to open it up and do, uh, not really Bible trivia, but open it up. What's really important for understanding 1 Corinthians 13 is the context of the letter in which it's found. Right? Most of the time you hear 1 Corinthians 13 at weddings, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but when you read the context of Corinthians, the portrait of 1 Corinthians 13 um, becomes less abstract. And there's a very concrete picture that we find. So I'm just going to open it up um, for people to answer. What are, when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, there's a number of things that he addresses in the Corinthian, this letter to the Corinthians. So what are just some of the things that we know about the Corinthian church? What are some of the things that were going on in the church that Paul's writing to correct? They were doing the Lord's Supper, some were getting nothing, and others were being drunk. Yeah. When Paul instructs on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, there's those who rush to eat and fill themselves, their stomachs, and there's those who even get drunk on the wine, and some are left without anything. And it's in this context that Paul writes to the Corinthians and commands them to partake of the supper in a worthy manner, um, to show care for one another rather than using the Lord's Supper as a self-serving uh, instrument that brings shame upon the church. What else? There's uh, a lot of, I guess, division of the church and who people identify with and people being proud of being members of one sect of the church. Yeah, in 1 Corinthians 1, we read Paul um, rebukes the Corinthians because they're dividing and quarreling based on who they follow. So he says, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas, who is Peter. And they are dividing themselves based on who they follow. And ironically, missing from this list is I follow Jesus, you know, which is the point that Paul's writing to address. Um, so they have this quarreling and this strife and this division based on who they follow. What else? There's major, major sexual immorality. Okay, some horrible sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians 5, we read about a son who is um, in a relationship with his father's wife. Um, and the Corinthians not only were not rebuking or putting this person out, but Paul writes that they, you are boasting and arrogant in this sin. Not only is this an abomination, not a, an abomination to you, you take a certain level of pride in the state of your church. And he says that this kind of sin isn't even tolerated among the pagans, those who are not in the church. Um, some of, I wrote the other ones down for the sake of time. I'll let you guys look at them. But these are just some of the explicit things that Paul says here. Um, like we said, quarreling and division in 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, we read about jealousy and strife between them in 1 Corinthians 3. Um, we read about their pride and their desire to elevate themselves over one another. 
tolerating sexual immorality, arrogance, boasting in the face of sin. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, we read about how instead of trying to work out legal issues in love with one another, they were defrauding one another and going to the courts. Instead of loving each other with grace and mercy, uh, they were seeking to defraud one another, to take advantage of one another, um, to not work out their differences in a Christ-like way. And uh, as Ben said, they were partaking of the Lord's Supper in a horrible way. <clears throat> so when we get to 1 Corinthians 13, this is what Paul is writing to address. Um, I've heard it said that 1 Corinthians 13 is a better passage to address um, the difficulties and the struggles of marriage rather than that initiate that feeling of marriage when you get married initially and everything's happy and go lucky. Um, it's better suited to address when our, that feeling of love that the world would emphasize tends to fade. Um, and it's the same thing here. When we look at love in the Christian life, 1 Corinthians 13 is not just an abstract passage on love that Paul is just teaching for the sake of teaching, but this is, in many ways, an actual rebuke of the Corinthian church, um, dealing with the sins that they are committing. And so, in 1 Corinthians 13, if you all want to turn there, um, in verse 4, this is what Paul says about love. He says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So, in contrast then to the love, or the pride, the arrogance, and the division of the Corinthian church, you have the chapter on love. And so I put them side by side. And if you look at them side by side, interestingly enough, what you really have, I think, on the left side is you have pride and selfishness. Um, this desire to put yourself above others and to serve yourself fundamentally. In contrast to that, in 1 Corinthians 13 is what we've been talking about. It's that Paul is saying, love looks exactly the opposite of what you are doing. Love looks like being patient with one another and not defrauding one another. Or love looks like enduring wrongdoing um, against you, not trying to defraud one another, take each other courts. But it also emphasizes dealing with sin in a Christ-like way. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Um, to bring up the example Daniel brought up earlier, love does not spare the truth for people in order to keep ourselves comfortable um, or to make life easier on ourselves. It is fundamentally unloving to leave someone in sin without the truth of the gospel or to not confront a brother and sister in Christ in love if they're walking in sin. That's the exact opposite. Um, it's selfishness. Um, love is not proud. Love is self-sacrificial. Um, and we see that again in Christ. Christ's love is not proud, and his love is not self-seeking. But his love is patient, and his love is kind. It does not envy or boast, and it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, and is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And Jesus' love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So if we look at the Christian life and what love ought to look like in the Christian life, if I was going to summarize it, I would say the love of Christians is grounded in the love of the Lord shown to them. We love because he loved us. We love in the way that he loved us. And the love, according to the Bible, is not self-serving or proud. Love, according to the Bible, is always serving others, desiring to serve others at one's own expense, always looking to see other people's needs and to meet them, um, regardless of whether they're your friends or they're your, they're your enemy. Um, so as we wrap up, does anybody have any questions or thoughts that they'd like to share? I think one thing that has struck me more and more as I get older in the faith is, you know, rather than focusing on loving other people is to truly grasp the love of God and, and ask Him to, to, for us to realize that love. I mean, we know it in our heads, but in our affections and our wills, sometimes it doesn't seep down that far. 
And I think as we love God, we're just compelled to love others. I mean, that's why Christ said, "Sure, Dad or Father, I will, uh, you know, I will save the people for you." You know, he he wanted to do that because he loved the Father. You know, and uh, so I think that's really our our focus is that we might grasp that. I think that's where we oftentimes lack. Mm-hmm. You know, so obedience becomes just obedience. It's not, I love my Father, so I want to do His will. You know, type thing. But, yeah. As I was studying this week, um, I had kind of experience with that. I was, as I was looking at the love of Christ and love of God, um, I just felt those affections for the Lord in my heart and that love for Him and all that He is that just blows my mind. But what's interestingly accompanied that is I didn't have to look very far then to see the areas that I can grow in my love for other people. Um, Just naturally, organically, as I was studying the love and meditating on the love of the Lord, and that love for Him was growing in my heart, then the way that I'm not loving other people becomes more clear um, when you orient it that way. Any other thoughts? Just put a plug in for a song by singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson called Love is a Good Thing. Mm-hmm. Kind of gets to the whole uh, his life and they're like it'll fall like rain on your parade and laugh at the plans that you try to make. It'll wear you down your heart just breaks. And that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. It kind of takes you through the self-sacrificial nature of love. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll wrap up with prayer, but I did want to say real quick, just from the heart, something that struck me this week is um, Jenna and I have benefited a lot from the love that we've experienced in our short time here and for the hospitality and care people have shown to us. And I have watched and participated in as needs have arisen and you all are eager and quick to answer the call and to serve other people. And so I did want to just tell you from the heart as I was reflecting on this that um, I was just struck with my thankfulness for the church that we are in and for your guys' love. And I would just encourage you um, and pray for you all that we look at the love of the Lord and we meditate on that and we rest in that um, and that that would just continue to produce in us a great radical love that is so different from the world um, that shows that we have been loved by a gracious and loving God. Um, So with that said, I'll, I'll pray. And close us out. Lord, we thank you for your love. It's a magnificent and incredible truth that you have loved us and saved us. Um, It's a truth we need to repeat to ourselves time and time again. Lord, you are so good. And as we look through the scriptures, we see your steadfast love for your people um, stretched across the history of the world, Lord. And we thank you that we know your love will endure until the end of time. Um, that we are held fast in that love. So Lord, I pray that you would cause us to meditate on your love this week. I pray that your spirit would impress it upon our minds and our wills, Lord. I pray that you would bear or create this fruit in us, Lord. Make us to bear the fruit of love um, that would show us different from the world, um, a love that would accompany our gospel proclamation um, to the lost and to the needy and that many will be uh, brought to the kingdom through our efforts at love because of your love, Lord. Um, I pray that you would just bless the rest of our time this morning, bless the preaching of your word and our worship. Um, Lord, we love you. We do thank you so much for your love. In Jesus' name.